in your copy of the scripture to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Very excited to begin this journey. It will be a long and hopefully fruitful journey. All 28 chapters of the book of Acts. You know, every book of the Bible holds its own kind of excitement. In fact, when Ben and I are talking about what's next, I'm notorious for just having a, I don't know, I mean, they're all so good. You know, I just, what's next? Uh, the next inspired book of Holy Scripture, just kind of spin the wheel, you know, and whatever it stops on. No, it's so uh, it was, it's slightly less arbitrary than that in, in real life, just to be clear, but this book is particularly exciting, I would say, because it has it all. The book of Acts has it all, brothers and sisters. Incredible stories. The book of Acts has compelling theology. The book of Acts forces very challenging interpretive decisions, particularly about how Old Testament passages are used by apostles in the New Testament. The book of Acts has practical insights. The book of Acts has historical snapshots. The book of Acts has character highlights. It it really has it all. There's something for everyone in the book of Acts. And so it is my hope that as we go, kind of embark on this adventure together, that it would not only be personally edifying, but corporately shaping, given the nature of kind of what the book of Acts is. And so as is my practice, I want to spend, if we're going to spend 28 chapters in the book of Acts, I wanted to today provide us a solid foundation upon which for doing so, so that we can move forward well. Uh, And then we're going to turn to the first five verses of the book of Acts. That's the game plan for today. Does that sound, does that sound reasonable? That sounds reasonable. So the author of Acts is widely considered to be Luke, the beloved physician, according to Colossians 4.14. Luke was very likely a Gentile who also wrote, to no surprise, the surprise of almost no one, the gospel of Luke. Same guy. And as we'll discuss in the next section, both the gospel of Luke and Acts are both addressed to the same individual Luke's gospel, as you just heard read, ends with the ascension, and the book of Acts begins with the ascension. And those things taken in conjunction very strongly suggest that Luke-Acts, as it's sometimes called in the literature, Luke-Acts, is really just part one and part two of the same work. It's really kind of a two-part work written to the same guy. All of the external evidence of church history has Luke as the author of both Luke and Acts. And when we look inside the book of Acts itself, we are going to find a variety of these we passages where the author himself is going to say, we, and it's going to be in the context of traveling with Paul, we went and so and did so and so when we went to so and so. And so at a certain point in the book of Acts where the, where the, the author of Acts clearly is a traveling companion of Paul or spent time traveling with Paul. And, and that fits not only very well with the shout out in Colossians 4.14, but it also fits with Philemon 24 and 2 Timothy 4.11 where Paul explicitly indicates that Luke is with him. 
So Luke explicitly mentioned twice in the New Testament as being a traveling companion of Paul. So when Luke says we, okay, it sure seems to suggest that the we, it means him and Paul in those particular passages. And so while we don't know much about Luke's background, we know he was well-educated, okay? He was a physician. Like I said, he was likely a, 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 likely a Gentile. But perhaps more important than all of that is that he had incredible first-hand experience doing ministry with the Apostle Paul, traveling with the Apostle Paul, eating with the Apostle Paul, asking questions to the Apostle Paul, which makes him a particularly good candidate to tell this history, to tell this particular story. And, and I prepared, you know, as I'm preparing to teach this, I was like, man, Luke, the doctor, traveling companion of Paul. Whew, that would have been awesome. That would have been awesome. That's Luke. That's about all we know of him. What about the recipients? Well, we learn in the very first verse of the book of Acts that, that, that Acts is written to the same person, again, that, that, that the uh, book of Luke is written to. The prologue of Luke tells us that a man named Theophilus, which means... Um, Something like lover of God, Theo, God, you hear that phile uh, uh, suffix there, love, lover of God. Common, common Jewish name, common Greco-Roman name. The fact that Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus guarantees that we're talking about an actual historical individual. So if you remember back in 2 John, John wrote to, in 2 John, the elect lady, Okay, but it wasn't talking about like one individual woman that he was writing to. Okay, this is an individual person. Theophilus is not a woman, it's a man. But this, but the way it is set off by most excellent Theophilus is a, is, is, um, would only have been said of someone who was an actual person. This is not figuratively, being used figuratively. There's a minority report, an extreme minority report in scholarship that says, oh, lover of God. Oh, that's talking about the church. It's just a letter written to the church in general. That is simply not the case. Theophilus was a historical figure, and this was written to Theophilus. In fact, um, it's very likely that Theophilus himself was wealthy and plausibly financed Luke's research into all these things. I mean, this took time. This took effort. This took uh, parchment. <laughs> this took some elbow grease, and it's very likely that Theophilus commissioned Luke to do this, and, and so that he could know things with certainty, commissioned him to do it, and, and provided the financial means for him to be able to do so. But while Theophilus is the direct recipient, the direct addressee, you might say, of the book of Acts, it's very clear that Luke intends a wider audience for the book of Acts, something like the capital C church. The capital, this way for you all, capital C church. Uh, because that is the nature of such a history. It was not simply written for Theophilus to put on his bookshelf and, you know, uh, uh, take out every couple of years. We can very plausibly conclude that Luke had wider circulation in mind, and certainly the tale of history is in and says, yes, that's exactly what happened. And that remains the case, even though he doesn't specifically name any churches or any church leaders. I mean, we don't know anything about Theophilus, but it doesn't say he's a church leader. Instead, at a secondary level, this is a work for the capital C church, which is why we have it here 
in our scriptures. This is not just some odd history book written for a man who just had to know. What about the the date, which is not what I just clicked on, uh, of Luke's gospel? Because Luke mentioned Paul mentions Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Okay, we're going to see that he mentions Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Luke could not have been written before 62, 62 A.D. But importantly, Luke also does not mention the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened when? In 70 A.D. Okay? So that's a fairly tight window. I mean, if given how much of a focal point Jerusalem is in the book of Acts, if Jerusalem was destroyed, it would be shocking uh, if Jerusalem was destroyed in recent memory, or um, while this, while he was writing this, it would be a shocking omission from the book of Acts. Okay, again, it's particularly given what a prominent role we're going to see Jerusalem has. And so, as one scholar put it, this was either written in, in the mid to late 60s, or so far after the fall of Jerusalem that it wasn't relevant anymore. And history just simply hasn't left us that option. And so, I favor a date in the mid to late 60s. Perhaps Luke is writing right before the fall of Jerusalem. We simply don't know. But definitely sometime after 62 and before 70. What about the provenance? It's a word that means kind of where it came from, where it originated from. Um, in this case, we have no idea. We have no idea where wrote, uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts from. And thankfully, in this case, it has far less relevance for how we would approach certain matters in the book because this is not a piece of personal correspondence, like a letter to this is not a letter to an individual, okay? Or nor is it an occasional letter to the church, like Paul writing to to the Thessalonian Christians. And so we really lose very little, if anything, by having no awareness of where Luke wrote from, okay? What kind of literature then is the book of Acts? Where that backwards? How did I get out of? Uh, that's why, because I, I did my slides wrong. So sorry for everybody. All right, you're still following along just fine though. What kind of literature is the book of Acts? This one is really, this one is really important, and here's why. Because similar to the Gospels, if we have wrong expectations about what we are reading, then we will be asking the book of Acts to conform to a standard in our reading of it that it actually isn't even trying to do that it isn't even setting out to do. Okay, so what kind of literature is it? It is true that Acts has many characteristics of the typical Roman uh, romantic novella, okay, including, um, interestingly, a shipwreck. Many of them includes a shipwreck, and Acts does, in fact, have a shipwreck. But those similarities notwithstanding, it is no, there's no, there can be no doubt that Luke is seeking to write history. This is a work of history. He says as much in Luke 1 that his mission, having followed things closely himself, was to put together an orderly account for Theophilus so that he could have certainty regarding the theme, uh, the things that had transpired. I mean, if that's not history, I don't know what is. He is writing so that he can have certainty about the events that have transpired, the things that have happened. 
Um, and so being nothing less than the continuation of Luke, that shouldn't be surprising. Acts is a piece of history. However, there is a but here. There's a but. Just like the Gospels, Acts is a very carefully curated history. So to use an illustration I heard this week in a different context that works great in this one, you know, when you go to a museum, you know, an art museum, just to clarify, and you walk around and you see the pieces hanging on the wall, um, you, hopefully you know that an art museum, those museums, they have pieces, hundreds of pieces in warehouses and archives and other places that are not hanging on the wall. In fact, if you were to go there and say, this is the art at this art museum, you would just, you know, based on you walking around, that would be very misleading. They have a ton of art, but guess what? There's only limited square footage on the walls. And so they only put out certain pieces and they put out certain, why do they put out certain pieces? They put it out for certain reasons. There could be a wide variety of reasons. But they are carefully bringing out of the archive all the things that they have, and they are hanging on the wall certain things for you and I to look at. And that is exactly what happens in the Gospels as history, and that is exactly what happens in the book of Acts as history as well. For example, one-third of Acts, a third, one-third of Acts consists of speeches. Do you know that? A I didn't know that. A third of the book of Acts as a piece of history consists of speeches. And yet, even in the case of those speeches, and Peter's speech, or his sermon is sometimes called, at Pentecost is a great example, even those speeches are condensed, greatly condensed. You can read Peter's speech at Pentecost in, in two minutes. That's, he was up there talking for way longer than that. So, like the Gospels, Luke is seeking to tell us history in the book of Acts, but not for, simply for the, the sake of having a history book, is to accomplish his own purpose in writing. And oftentimes that means skipping around. Sometimes that means skipping ahead quite a bit. And you, and you probably didn't even notice that, that at the end of the Luke reading, he skips ahead, you know, five weeks or so in the span of one verse to the ascension. Okay? In other words, it's not the kind of history that we would expect from someone like David McCullough. And if we read the book of Acts like that as ancient history, we're going to end up with problems. We're going to end up with serious problems. This is a schematized, curated history designed to advance Luke's purpose. And what is that purpose? What is that purpose? Again, certainly there's the immediate purpose of writing something for Theophilus. But when, but when we read Acts, what do we see? What do we see when we read the book of Acts? Now let me say here that you actually, answering this question, you might be misled by the title. By the title. Acts of the what? Apostles. Acts of the Apostles which was certainly one of, and definitely not the only, one of the ways in which that this, this book came to be referred to early on in the church. Um, but while certain apostolic figures figure prominently in the book of Acts, the acts of some apostles aren't even mentioned. Okay? 
Furthermore, um, there are huge players in the book of Acts that aren't apostles. You think of Silas, you think of Philip, you think of Luke himself as a player, a major player in the book of Acts. But more important than any of that is this. The title of the book, can not that it's inaccurate, but it could potentially obscure the fact that the acts of God are actually the main player in this book. It is the acts of God that are really on display. And then that is not just some grandiose theological point that you could make about every single book. I mean it in a very particular way. It is God who is the main character here, who is seen marvelously and miraculously shaping and working and advancing the church from heaven. So there is an unmistakable heavenly intrusion in the book of Acts. There is an unmistakable heavenly intrusion in the book of Acts. As God advances the church, there is a supernatural presence that keeps, not interfering sounds bad, but interacting, I guess, contacting the earthly. From the very beginning, an angel that appears to them uh, after the ascension. Okay? The falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The falling of the Holy Spirit later on the Gentiles. There's a, in Acts chapter 5, we're going to see a divine execution of a lying couple. We see the glorious risen Lord who encounters Paul on the Damascus Road. We're going to see a miraculous earthquake that somehow unlocks everyone's handcuffs in a prison. We're going to see a supernatural preservation of Paul as he's bitten by a snake and everyone around him is like, oh man, you're done. Like you are done, done. And he shakes it off. There is an intrusion of the heavenly into the earthly in the book of Acts as it is really the acts of God that are primarily on display, notwithstanding the intermediaries of the apostles and folks like Silas and, and, and Philip and and Luke himself. So what does Acts display then about God's work? Here's what I want to suggest. We'll find this. Acts is written to communicate and affirm the birth and spread of the church as a community of God, rooted in the promises of the past, and driven by the power of the resurrected Christ in the present. Okay? I'll read that one more time. That Acts is written to communicate... It is telling something, and it's affirming it, endorsing it, the birth and spread of the church as a community of God rooted in the promises of the past and driven by the power of the resurrected Christ in the present. Finally then, what are some of the key themes in the book of Acts? It's helpful to get these up front to recycle an illustration, you know, Sometimes many of you have walked through houses trying to decide whether you want to buy one or not. And maybe a realtor said, hey, look out for this as you go through the home. Maybe you've taken a tour of something and someone has said, hey, be on watch for these things. And, you know, maybe you would have seen it. Maybe you would not have seen it. But when you're primed beforehand and someone says, hey, be on the lookout for these things, you're going to see them more than you otherwise would. And you're going to say, ah, OK, I see that. I see how that really, really takes shape. And so that's what I want to do. Here to tell you to be on the lookout for a couple of these major themes. The first one I already gave a little bit of a nod to, and that is God is the driving force 
behind the church. I want you to be on lookout for the intrusion of heaven into the earthly as God advances the church, as Christ works in the church. And I want us to be reminded that the church is God's church, and His plan to advance it, no, no more then than today, is His plan. And His work is still His work, and He's still the one doing it. So when you read the book of Acts, don't think that God is now less advancing the church through His sovereignty than He did then. The intrusion of heaven may look different, and it certainly does in certain places where the church is established, but it would be a huge mistake to think that Christ is not still guiding, directing, growing the church. The second theme is the Holy Spirit. Probably many of you could have rattled that one off the top of your head. The promise of the Spirit, both in the Old Testament and both on the lips of people like John the Baptist and even Jesus himself, who said he was going to send a helper, come to fulfillment in the book of Acts at Pentecost and beyond. And that's critical, by the way. That's critical. The fulfillment comes at Pentecost, but also beyond Pentecost. And when we get there, we'll get there. If you've been following along in our uh, Union with Christ Sunday School class, you know, I've argued that the resurrected Christ, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, um, is referred to as the Spirit of Christ in the New Testament multiple times. And, and I suggested that Christ functions. He functions as the Spirit in the life of the believer, so much that Paul can call him the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.19, the Spirit of His Son, Galatians 4.16, and Luke is going to actually just call him the Spirit of Jesus, Acts 16.7, okay? The Spirit of Jesus. And so there is this incredibly close connection between the risen Lord, who was raised and transformed by the Spirit into the glorious resurrection body, and the Spirit who is sent, and I'm suggesting that Christ works, operates functionally through the Spirit in the church. And we're going to circle back to this in the first, first five verses, this, this tight connection. We're also going to see the gospel for all nations. This one is not new. This one is from the very beginning, that all nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. He was going to be blessed to be a blessing. But in Acts, we see that fleshed out in an unprecedented way in biblical history up to this point. We see it fleshed out in the book of Acts in an unprecedented way, along with all that entails uh, and the challenges that it brings. And it certainly will bring some challenges. And the main challenge is the inclusion of the Gentiles. You know, you may have thought that how this was going to go down after Jesus' ministry and after him spending 40 days with them talking about the kingdom of God, that kind of the details here would have been all ironed out. You know what I mean? That's what I would think. That there wouldn't be a lot of confusion. This is what's going to happen, A, and then B, here's how it's going to happen, right? But Acts tells a very, very different story. Acts tells a very different story 
uh, about how the Gentiles end up fitting in. Particularly, there's confusion and disagreement about what they are supposed to do. Are they supposed to become Jewish? Are they supposed to be circumcised? Like, what category do we put them in? Because remember, the mystery that was hidden and now revealed is not that the Gentiles get in on the blessing. That's not it throughout the whole the, the mystery now revealed. The, the, the Gentiles are going to get on the blessing. That's not mysterious. Anyone who read the Old Testament already knows that. The mystery is how it happens. The mystery is how it happens, that they are grafted into Israel without themselves becoming Jews, which leads to the um, second, well, I'm going to say one more, then I'm going to give the ultimate tension in the book of Acts. We're going to see opposition to the way. We see this, the way, mentioned half half a dozen or so times. This is a book that is full of opposition to faithful Christianity. Does that sound like it's relevant to to our day? It should. We're going to see the gospel attacked and faithfulness to Jesus attacked on every side. Government. We're going to see it attacked from influential pagans. We're going to see it attacked by other religious people, Jews. And right next to that, here's what we're going to see. The power of God bulldoze right through it. Boom! The power of God as He advances His church, despite persecution, just bulldozes right over it. Right through all of these challenges as the way is opposed. And then finally, uh, paired with the inclusion of the Gentiles, is this tension. It's perhaps the most delicate tension in the book of Acts. And that is that the, the idea is that the church is new. Kind of. But not really. That feels awkward. It's like, yes, that's that's the that's part of the point. That's why they're trying to sort it out. It, it's more new, like the blossom. You're growing a little flower. I've never grown a flower, so I hope this is how it works. But you know, you're seeing a flower grow, maybe, and um, it's like saying that the blossom is new. It's different from the seed and stem. Is that not right? Well. In one sense, it is, but it isn't an altogether new thing. In other words, the blossom emerges, you might say, from what was already there. It's not, it's not a new thing, despite being different. I mean, the other part's green, this part's pink. I understand it's different, the, the, the different uh, feels different. But it's not like an altogether different thing at all. It is really, you might say, the fulfillment of the whole thing. The blossom is a fulfillment. What we're going to see is that the church emerges from Judaism as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And we're going to see that Christianity is really fulfilled Judaism and that faithful Jews are expected to recognize that they aren't being asked to switch religions. They're not being asked to switch religions. They're being asked to look at their own religion and understand that this is what it's pointing to and the fulfillment of it's here. Okay? The fulfillment of it is here. So the church is distinct, but it emerges from Judaism. It's not this brand new thing. It is the fulfillment of what has come before it. So I hope that was a helpful foundation because now it is time to begin working our way through this book in the first couple of verses. Luke writes, 
in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The first book, as you probably realize, is a reference to Luke's gospel in the first book. And as we mentioned before, it is written to the same guy. Theophilus. Luke gives us a recap of the book, and what I want to point out specifically is this very important phrase, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice what it doesn't say. I have dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. Now, why is that important? We're going to come back to it in just a second. But in his first book, he highlighted what Jesus began to do and what he began to teach until he was taken up, that is to say, until the ascension, which we heard at the end of the second scripture reading, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. We don't know specifically what commands he's talking about. Certainly, uh, the Holy Spirit plays uh, a role. a very large role in the book of John. Certainly, John himself records that if he had recorded all the words that Jesus had said, you know, he couldn't fit them in the library. The whole world would be filled with them. So it doesn't say, uh, it, it doesn't say exactly. But let me just mention this. If you miss everything about this introduction, this is, the one, this is one of the parts I don't want you to miss about understanding the book of Acts. It is simply a mistake to think of Luke's gospel as the ministry of Jesus, and then the book of Acts as the kind of the the acts of the apostles and the church in action and the spread of the early church. That is not the way to think of the book of Acts. Rather, Luke's gospel tells the story of Christ's the condescended Christ's earthly ministry and ends with the ascension, where Acts begins with the ascension and tells of the heavenly ministry of the resurrected Jesus. Which accounts for all of the intrusions that we are going to find in one way or another. Luke's gospel tells us about the earthly ministry of the condescended Jesus and ends with the ascension. Acts begins with the ascension and tells us about the heavenly ministry of the resurrected Jesus. They are simply two phases of the ministry of Christ. That's why he says all he began to do. In the first book, here's what he started. The second book is... Here's what, he, here's what he's doing, you might say. And so Luke writes that Christ presented himself, verse 3, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For whatever reason... And no one really knows, okay? But for whatever reason, as we see in the Gospels and we see confirmed here, after Christ 
was raised from the dead, he did not simply return to day-to-day ordinary life with the apostles. It's not what happened. You know, in the Gospels, he, he, the, the, the Gospels, he's, he's living life with them as a day-to-day thing. They're eating together, sleeping together, all the rest of it. When Christ rises from the dead, that is not how he continues to interact with them. It's not this consistent day-to-day life. Instead, over a period of 40 days, he presented himself, uh, he presented himself as alive as risen from the dead, and he even offers these proofs, like having a beach barbecue at the end of John, eating some fish and luke, so that people would know, not people in general, specifically the apostles who'd be witness to it, would know that he rose from the dead. He rose physically from the dead. The Greek word proof here is a word that means that which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner. So he presents presents himself to them, not just to hang out again, okay? But he presents himself for a very specific purpose, and one of those purposes, uh, the main purpose, you might say, is that they would testify and be a witness to his resurrection. Now, What exactly was Jesus doing when he wasn't with them, but after he had resurrected from the dead? So Jesus, crucified, raises from the dead, occasionally, you know, here and there, presents himself as proof. What was he doing the other time? Where was he? What what was he? I mean, do you know? I don't know. Nobody knows. We don't know. It simply isn't answered for us where Jesus' unaccounted time uh, was and precisely what he was doing. And of course, you could make two or three good theological guesses, I suppose, but we simply don't know. And it has to be said that those 40 days is a very theologically awkward time. Okay, it causes, you know, the theologian to really kind of scratch their head, you know, because the vast majority of the time in almost all of the New Testament, when we read about the resurrection of Christ, we're talking about the ascended resurrected Christ at the right hand of God waiting for all enemies to be put under his feet. There's 40 days of resurrected Christ that's not that. Okay? There's 40 days of resurrected Christ, but not ascended Christ. Everything else in church history after the resurrection is ascended Christ. When you say that when we talk about the resurrected Christ, we just are assuming the ascended resurrected Christ. But for 40 days, there was an unascended resurrected Christ and it have to confess that it is it just doesn't really fit our categories. What exactly was going on here? Okay? But what we do know is that what he did when he did present himself was he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Presented him himself to give proof of resurrection, but also he spoke to them about the kingdom of God like he had spoken so much throughout the course of his ministry. What exactly did he tell them about the kingdom of God? It isn't entirely clear, and it's not entirely clear that they even understood what he said until the Spirit comes. But I'm giving away a little bit of giving away a little bit of my surprises. We need to get to the ascension and then Pentecost before I can tell that whole story. But certainly Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God pre-crucifixion resurrection, and as he appeared to them, he also taught on the kingdom of God. 
And then Luke goes on to recount that while he was with them, and this would have been after, by the way, if you're trying to reconcile this, you're thinking, wait, weren't they here or there? This would have been after they rendezvoused in Galilee, and then they had made, their, made, made, made a trek back down to Jerusalem. We read, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here, this language of the promise of the Father takes us back to the Old Testament in particular. We heard it in Luke's gospel, but particularly Old Testament promises of the Spirit, particularly something like Joel chapter 2, that there is going to be the Spirit of God poured out. And that's about to happen for you all. So he ordered them to stay there. By the way, Pentecost is 50 days uh, after Passover. So he was with them for 40 days. And so essentially, they were waiting there together in Jerusalem for 10 days. That's the point I'm trying to make. Roughly 10 days. 50 days between Passover and Pentecost on the calendar. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Means that remainder, if I'm doing the math right, from Alabama is 10 Ten days that they were waiting in eager anticipation. What were they thinking? Can you imagine being in that room? Y'all, any moment now, the Holy Spirit could drop on us from Joel chapter 2. Can you imagine the anticipation? What on earth is going to happen? We freaked out about a dying and rising Messiah. But what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes down? The tension would just have been amazing. And especially for 10 days, too, it's like, oh, probably tomorrow. Day three, oh, it's coming on day four. No, about 10 days. Of course, in the course of his ministry, Jesus has taught him about the Spirit as well, spoken of first by John the Baptist. John the Baptist himself says, hey, you know, I baptize with water, but there's, there's someone coming. There's someone coming after me who is going to give a fuller baptism. A baptism that is more fundamental, both in what it represents and in the consequences that it has. A baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, but is it not, it's not happening in this moment. You all wait. You, go, you stay here in Jerusalem. And that is where the book of Acts, after this right here, this is the prologue. Then the book of Acts, properly speaking, starts, and we get the second part of Jesus' ministry from heaven after the ascension. Well, let me just make one uh, brief point here in application, and it's this business of one Christ in two ministries, which, as I'm suggesting, is the paradigm with which we should understand the book of Acts. And I just want to ask you, how much thought have you given to the idea of Christ's present ministry from heaven as displayed in the book of Acts as compared with his past ministry on earth displayed in the gospel of Luke or any of the other gospels for that matter. It is true that when we look out in places where the church is already established, we typically do not see the precise kind of intrusion of heaven 
We don't see earthquakes that magic that, that, that unlock people's shackles miraculously. We don't see uh, uh, divine executions. At least I've never seen one. If you have, let me know because I want a sermon illustration. Okay, but I've not I've not seen those. Although I would suggest this that that where there is, and this is because of the reports that I have heard from my missionary friends combined with my theology. They don't have time to explain. I do believe that when there is little or no church to speak of in an area, that we may very well expect to see some of these exact things now. And I think we do see some of these things now, where there is no church presence to speak of. And yet, it would be a tremendous mistake, a tremendous mistake to think of Christ's rule from heaven as, you know, he must reign until all things are put under his feet, kind of like Christ is up there propped up, right, with an ottoman, ruling from heaven. I can't do both feet, you know, but you understand. Okay, ruling from heaven. And he has his passive ministry because what he already did is done. Jesus already went to bat, okay? He did his peace, and now he's resting. That's just not what Acts presents at all. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus is not just as active in the church now as he was then, active in interceding for sin. He is driving the church. He's protecting the church. He's empowering the church, shaping the church, guiding the church by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is what the heavenly ministry of Christ looked like. That is part two. And part two has gone on a lot longer in the ministry of Jesus than part one did. This ministry from heaven, even when that ministry looks different at different times and different places relative to different contexts, Jesus' ministry is still Jesus' ministry. And he is still working just as much now as he was then. You know, and the question is just, you know, do we believe that? You know, do we believe that? Is that hard for you to believe? You know, the, the book of Acts. The book of Acts confirms for us that things like Christ is building his church, it's not an empty slogan. It's not some empty slogan. Christ has a heavenly ministry that, that, that he is work in which he is working to build and to shape. It, and it might not look, it certainly in most cases does not look identical to a lot of the things that we are going to see in the book of Acts, which is the very beginning of that particular, uh, uh, the very beginning of the new covenant and the falling of the Spirit. But we have the opportunity to participate with Christ in ministry by following our marching orders as He guarantees the success. I mean, have you ever thought, I mean, I certainly have, it would have been awesome to, to have been on Christ's ministry team. You know, like rigorous selection process, obviously, but they got 12 guys together. And there they were, the apostles, <sighs> Jesus' ministry team. But the idea is, how are you and I participating in the heavenly ministry of Christ? Because it's no less participation, right? I mean, if Jesus showed up right here, he wouldn't be any more real. He wouldn't be any more powerful, do our eyes deceive us? Do we romanticize the past in one sense? 
We yearn for something that some people used to have, but we have some watered-down version of it. No, brothers and sisters, no, no, no. That's not the case. You and I have the opportunity to participate in the heavenly ministry of Christ. Does, does phase two, then, of Christ's ministry from heaven seem less real? How, how, how might you rethink your ministry in your home or your office or your, your whatever, your neighborhood, in light of the present ministry of Christ from heaven by the Spirit and how you are a participant in that? You are on the ministry team. You're on Christ's ministry team. And I want to encourage us to own and honor and walk in that truth together individually and corporately as a body of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the kingdom of God and its having come. We're thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit. We are thankful that you minister to our hearts and to our churches and to our families from heaven through the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that raised him from the dead and transformed his lowly body, that will transform our lowly body so that it will be like his glorious body. We pray that we would live in that confidence. That if, we're, that if we think we are insignificant, that we step back and say, wait a second, I've got it wrong. Please forgive us of thinking that because we weren't back in the past, that we are somehow getting a watered-down version of things. Help the reality that we are participants in your ministry following marching orders of a conquering king to wash over us, control our thoughts, Lord. To you be all the glory in that endeavor. In the name of the resurrected and ascended.